This week on Geeksplained, our latest Geeksplained spotlight takes a look at one of the most iconic DC Elseworlds stories of all time. What if, instead of landing in Smallville, the rocket-carrying baby Kal-El of Krypton landed in the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War? Find out today as we spotlight Superman, Red Sun. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is all about Superman Red Sun, one of the most iconic DC Elseworlds stories of all time, and really, I think, one of the most fa- famous Superman stories of all time. We're going to be breaking it down in our latest edition of the Geek Explain Spotlight, as well as diving back into the current season of Doctor Who with our weekly review. I didn't mean to rhyme there, that just happened. And of course, we also have this week's comics countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. guys and dolls so we've got some news for you you ready for some news let's do it Uh, of course we have our four categories film tv comics and miscellaneous we're going to kick it off with miscellaneous news because that's the one that i think um well there's less of it obviously but uh, i'm really excited about it because the oscars were this past weekend and whether or not you are someone who follows along with award season whether you're someone who just kind of lets it pass by without giving it a second thought uh this oscars was actually pretty exciting uh for those of you who aren't aware parasite won best basically best feature film as well as three other oscars that means that bong joon ho who directed the film uh is the only man to ever tie Walt Disney for winning four Oscars on the same night. Really exciting. As an Asian American and as an Asian American actor, it makes me really excited for the future of Asian cinema. Uh, And for those of you who are super excited about it and want to know more about Bong Joon-ho and his whole filmography, Go back, check out some of his stuff. Uh, Snowpiercer is one of my favorite films from him. Uh, that's pretty, I think, it went under the radar. I think it's on Netflix right now. But uh, it stars Chris Evans, also, you know, a national treasure. So I think you should definitely check that out. And then check out all the films that he's directed. He's a fantastic director, and I'm glad that he's finally um, getting into the spotlight. Also, uh, Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit won for Best Adapted Screenplay, which I'm really excited about as well. And for those of you who are Joker fans, Walking Phoenix did walk away with the Best Actor win. So that is the Oscars uh, coverage. Lots of winners, lots of losers, of course, as well. But overall, I think this was a pretty exciting night for all of the reasons that I listed already. The surprise wins, the 
kind of, we assumed wins, like Walking Phoenix. Um, overall, I think this was one of the better um, awards shows in the last couple of years when it comes to the Oscars, even though apparently the, uh, the viewing figures were down, but whatever. So that does it for miscellaneous news. We're going to jump over to TV news. Uh, first off, we have our first look at Sue Dearborn for The Flash for next week's episode. We uh, got some, basically some uh, set stills and a couple of uh, pictures showing off Natalie Dreyfus as Sue Dearborn, soon to be Re or Sue Dibney eventually in the future, and as well as a Plot synopsis for the episode. I'm going to read it out because I'm really excited. It's Ralph and Sue. I love this. Uh, the episode is called A Girl Named Sue. And the synopsis goes something like this. When Ralph met Sue. After months of searching for Sue Dearborn, Ralph gets a lead on her whereabouts and finally comes face to face with his missing client. However, Sue refuses to re return home to her family and instead takes Ralph on a daring adventure. Iris faces a new challenge while Barry considers a potentially dangerous request from a trusted source. The second half is fine, it's the Flash, but really what's bringing it to the dance for me is, of course, Ralph and Sue. Really excited about it, really looking forward to this. You know, their love story is one of the great love stories in comics, even though it didn't end very well. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, go read Identity Crisis. But... I'm really excited about it, really looking forward to this. On the Marvel side of things, when it comes to TV, there's rumor and speculation going on right now that Disney Plus is developing a secret invasion show, uh, probably in the lead-up to Captain Marvel 2, which we do know is on the horizon at some point in uh, Phase 5. I'm really excited about that. Secret Invasion is one of the best Marvel crossovers in the last you know 20 years, and I'm really excited to see what they would do with it. I think if they decided to go this route but kept it more, um, I would say, what's the word, um, <clears throat> more uh, grounded, more intimate, they could take a cue from the recent Meet the Scrolls book, which I thought was good, uh, but I think as it ramps up, it's probably going to get bigger and bigger until it goes into Captain Marvel 2, which has been rumored to be a full-on secret invasion story. So, sounds interesting to me. Going into film news, we've got one, two, three, four pieces of film news to talk about here. First off, uh, it's been reported that both Black Adam, which we do know is <clears throat> uh, already in production to be to get start started filming we've covered some of the casting stuff in the past uh it's gonna have some competition when it comes to filming this summer from an unlikely place because shazam 2 is also going to be filming alongside black adam at the same time this summer i don't know what this means i don't know if they're just pulling you know the wool over our eyes and shazam 2 is black adam i don't know what it means but i think it's really interesting we also, uh, on DC News, this is almost all DC News, except for the last one, but uh, we got new images from Entertainment Weekly for Wonder Woman 84. The hype is real. I'm super excited about this film. I cannot wait to watch it. But Entertainment Weekly uh, released some new photos, giving us a new look at Diana's Golden Eagle armor. Looks gorgeous. Really excited about it. I kind of wish we had... 
they had waited to show more of this in a trailer or in the actual film itself. But Arma looks gorgeous, Gal Gadot looks incredible, and I'm really excited about this film. One thing I'm kind of less excited about is that uh, Birds of Prey has undergone a name change. Because apparently... They are, DC and Warner Bros. is really disappointed with the box office, which I get, totally understand. Um, this past weekend with the uh, Birds of Prey releasing, if you haven't listened to our spoiler review, check that out, it's in the feed. Um, it pulled in right around $33 million domestic, which apparently isn't good anymore. Um, but they, it is the lowest when it comes to DC superhero films uh, box office. For the opening weekend, I think the word of mouth, though, is going to have it bump up. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we're going to get some uh, some light shit on that. And we're going to get more people into the theater to watch this. It's such a fun film. It's such a good time. Definitely check that out. And, and I guess in the hopes to uh, help uh, get people into the theater, DC and Warner Brothers have changed the name from Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn to Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. Which is fine. I mean, the first title was a little wordy for me, um, and they really are trying to market this as a Harley Quinn movie, which they should be because it is a Harley Quinn movie with the Birds of Prey as kind of supporting characters. I would have gone with just Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, but what do I know? Uh, <laughs> but um yeah i think it's it's probably a good idea especially since they want people to come see margot robbie as harley quinn which you absolutely should because she's fantastic so i think this in the end will be a good idea and then finally for film news we have some rumor and speculation on the marvel side of things and an update on Doctor Strange 2, because as we all know, uh, Scott Derrickson, who directed the first film, is out, and they are looking for a new director because, oh no, the film starts filming this year, and it looks like they seem to be overcorrecting, because rumor is right now that they are going to be bringing in Sam Raimi of Spider-Man and Evil Dead fame, among other films, of course. Uh, I think this is great. I'm a little worried because the feeling that I got from Scott Derrickson leaving is that he wanted to make a really true true blue uh, horror film in the Marvel Universe, and Feige and the rest of uh, Marvel kind of pushed back against that. So bringing in someone who also has horror roots, I don't know how I feel about it, but we have seen in the past that Sam Raimi can uh, take, a, take a popular comic book property, make it his own, and still... Uh, also fly under the umbrella of a um, of a studio's mandates. We saw we've seen that with the Spider-Man film specifically. So I think this would be a good pickup for them, and it would also be huge goodwill for all of those lapsed fans who were fans of the uh, Raimi Spider-Man films who aren't as much of a fan of the uh, MCU films. So I think this is a good idea. No confirmation yet as of this recording, but. I'm assuming they're, they have to make a decision soon, so we'll see. And now jumping into comics news. I'm really excited about the comics news this week. Uh, first off, we got the first tease for Generation Zero, which is an upcoming uh, DC Comics one-shot that's going to be kicking us off into 5G, apparently. Uh, it's just an image. It raises a lot of questions. Uh, basically, we see Wally West dead center with the Dr. Manhattan symbol on his uh, on his forehead. Don't know what that's about. 
I'm assuming it has to do with Flash Forward, but I don't like spoilers, so I haven't looked into this more than just the image. Uh, around him, we see five different images. We see the Batman Who Laughs. We see the classic new Teen Titans from the 80s. We see the new 52, which I think is interesting. We see different variations of Superman throughout the years in different costumes and stuff. And then the fifth image is classic, like, Neil Adams, Batman, and Robin running towards the... Uh, I guess, towards the page. So, again, I have no idea what this means, no idea how it um, refers to the 5G thing that's coming up, but I'm interested and worried and cautiously optimistic are all the words that I would use to describe that. Uh, we also got something really exciting, and it's much smaller. It was a uh, tease from Gary Frank of... Doomsday Clock, uh, Superman's Secret Origin, and many other beautiful comics fame. Uh, he released a just a smidgen of something that he's working on, and it looks like he could be teasing a possible Wonder Woman JSA uh, book or project or something, because what he showed with this black and white uh, still, it looked like it it was both uh, sketched and inked already, but it looked like Wonder Woman's classic costume back when she was first debuting. So she had the skirt, the high boots, um, and in the image also you can see uh, Adam Smasher, like his shoulder. Uh, very distinctive if you know what he looks like and his costume. So I'm really interested, especially if it has anything to do with the JSA, and we do know that in the upcoming Flash 750, Jay Garrick will be getting a big old story in that book. I'm super stoked about it. Uh, so if that ties in, I'm in. I'm so in. Uh, next up on the Marvel side of things, uh, Marvel has teased and kind of released some information on its quote-unquote most ambitious Marvel series ever by uh, uh, Kirk Busiek, uh, Alex Ross... And Sinar? Kinar? I know I mispronounced your name and I apologize. Uh, but it's looking like this series, which is going to be titled The Marvels, seems to be an anthology series that they're going to be looking at from all over the Marvel Universe when it comes to space, when it comes to Earthbound. Every issue is going to be a different story with different characters. I'm down with that, especially if you have Alec Ross on art. Uh, I'm worried that it's not going to come out very often because... Similarly to Gary Frank, Alex Ross likes to take his time with his art to make it look as beautiful as possible, which I totally get. But it sounds cool. It sounds like an idea that we haven't really seen in a while, and I'm down for it. And finally, the big comics news of the week, the big announcement that dropped literally today. I am recording this on Wednesday and releasing it as well, uh, is that we finally know what the Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo uh, magnum opus is going to be for DC Comics. They've been teasing it, and finally we are getting the info. The big crossover is going to be called DC Death Metal. Ooh. Basically, the... Uh, sequel to DC uh, Dark Knight's Metal is going to be DC Dark Knight's Death Metal. And it refers to basically being not just a sequel to uh, 
Dark Knight's Metal, but also being a sequel to Scott Snyder's Justice League run, as well as the Hell Arisen run, as well as a sort of sequel to Batman Superman that's going on right now by Josh Williamson. Um, a lot of stuff, but this is supposed to be like the end game for all that premise is that um, the dark multiverse has seeped into earth uh, basically batman who laughs is one he's enslaved the earth for the most part uh, batman of course batman leads an underground resistance while superheroes like wonder woman and the flash have some kind of weird peace treaty to keep safe the remaining human population that isn't corrupted by the dark uh, multiverse and then superman is apparently literally powering the sun and being forced to do so so everything sucks and we're gonna find out how they resolve this uh the images look really really cool batman has this incredible looking like grim reaper scythe on top of a motorcycle uh wonder woman is echoing the image that we saw earlier uh, earlier this year where she's got like the chainsaw sword and superman looks really interesting he's got his long long hair there's a chain around his waist, which I'm assuming is what keeps him chained to the sun. And then his right arm looks like it's being turned slowly into, like, dark side. He's even got, like, the blue band around his hand. So I'm curious. I don't know what this means. But I'm sure we're going to get more info as the Hell Arisen book continues. I think there's only, like, two more issues left of it. So looks really interesting. Um, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, what more can you ask for? Though I worry that this is going to end up becoming some kind of DC Black Label thing, and then our whole, like, continuity thing is going to be messed up again, but 5G's coming, so I guess it doesn't really matter anyway. So I'm interested, but we'll see. And that does it for the news for this week. Like I said, lots to talk about, but now we're going to move on to the main course of the episode, the entree, if you will, which is our latest Geek Explained Spotlight on Superman Red Sun. Salutations, comrades. Welcome to Geeksplain Spotlight. Ooh, that's rough. Like, can you imagine if I did this entire episode with that voice? Oh, well, I don't know. That that would be uh, that'd be a struggle. Not just like to listen to, I'm sure, but also to just get through. Anyway, this is your Geeksplain Spotlight for the month of February. If you're unfamiliar with the Geeksplain Spotlight series, this is our uh, podcast within a podcast, I suppose. This is our segment where each month we take a special look at a graphic novel, a miniseries, an ongoing comic that I think is awesome and definitely is worth checking out out and this month we're taking a special look at superman red sun i love this story it's iconic it is um 
probably one of the most well-known Superman stories of all time, just based on the premise alone. Uh, and little known fact, if you weren't aware, uh, we actually have an animated film adaptation that's going to be coming out later this month. So I figured this is the best time to talk about it. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in. But first off, before uh, we head into the discussion, um, got to put out a spoiler warning. This is your spoiler warning for Superman Red Sun. If you have not read the story, if you're unfamiliar with the story, uh, go check it out. Pick it up at your local comic book shop. Um, if you have the DC Universe streaming service and app, uh, you can read it for free on there. It has all three issues. You can read through them. That's how I read through them to uh, refresh my memory and get me prepped for this episode. They're not a sponsor, though they could be a sponsor. They could totally sponsor us. Um, but I just think it's definitely worth talking about. Uh, this story deserves to be read, whether you've read it before or this is your first time reading it. Absolutely read the story and then come back and we're going to talk about it. Uh, before we get into the actual story, though, I got to give a little bit of backstory on Elseworlds. Uh, it's kind of an interesting concept nowadays, now that we're, we've got um, multiverse and, you know, the ultimates and the idea of all of these alternate stories, alternate Earths, alternate histories in both DC and Marvel. It's kind of commonplace nowadays. They even did a film based around that concept with Into the Spider-Verse. But DC, I think, was really the pioneer of this formula, of this format, of taking heroes that you know and putting them into situations and stories that you don't. And one of the greatest stories of all time when it comes to that imprint was Superman Red Sun. Uh, Elseworlds really isn't a really isn't an imprint nowadays. Nowadays, you're probably going to find multiverse or alternate history stories in the DC Black Label line, which I I don't know. I, I kind of think Elseworlds sounds better than Black Label, but whatever. DC wants to be edgy and exciting and all of that stuff. So now we have Black Label, which has produce some pretty awesome stories. I think uh, Mr. Miracle was retroactively folded into the Black Label line, just like technically Mr. Miracle has been retroactively folded into, into the Geeksplain Spotlight line. Um, currently, right now, the uh, Batman White Knight and Curse of the White Knight series by Sean Gordon Murphy also fall into the Black Label line. So there are great stories coming out of the Black Label line. But for me, when you're talking about alternate histories, um, alternate Earths, stories that have familiar characters put in unfamiliar settings, Elseworlds is it. Elseworlds is the place to be. And this specific story, Superman Red Sun, really allows um, its creators to stretch their wings a little bit, which I think Elseworlds really did for all of the creators that were on the pro projects that they worked on. For this one specifically, we have Mark Millar uh, in writing duties. Say what you will about the guy, especially in uh, recent years, but Mark Millar has written some of the most, I would say... Um, controversial and yet at the same time innovative 
comic book properties and comic book stories in the last 20 years, and this one really is no exception. On art duties, we have Dave Johnson and Killian Plunkett. I tend to lean towards uh, Dave Johnson's work across these three issues, across this uh, graphic novel, just because his feels a little bit more... um, Darwin Cook-esque. It looks a little bit more uh, clean, a little bit more um, Fleischer, cartoony, I guess. And I, I kind of, I'm drawn to that kind of uh, art style. Like, um, for example, like Michael Cho, I like a lot. Chris Somney, I like a lot. And that doesn't mean that Killian Plunkett doesn't do a good job on this. He really does. I think the entire last issue is just Killian Plunkett. And his style is a little bit grittier, a little bit more um, lines-based, which sounds weird. But you'll know what I'm talking about when you read it, or if you have read it. But I I really think that this creative team did an incredible job telling the story and really taking you into the world of Superman Red Sun. Now, what is the Superman Red Sun world like? Well, this story takes place uh, primarily during the Cold War. There is a pretty, I think, uh, overbearing sense of dread which comes with any cold war story and it especially comes out here because unlike in the dc universe proper or most alternate earths that happen to uh, carry a superman within them instead of landing in good old kansas and the good old us of a uh, kal-el's pod landed in the ukraine during the 1930s so At this point, Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union, and when Superman grows up and becomes an adult and decides to use his powers to save mankind, he does so in the service of Stalin and Soviet Russia. And honestly, it's it's really fascinating, this idea. Um, I think they say in the first issue, like if it's it really comes down to the rotation of the earth if superman had landed on earth 13 hours earlier he would have landed in kansas but because of the um the premise of the story and through whatever multiversal shenanigans has to happen to cause this uh story to happen superman's pod lands 13 hours late and in the middle of rural ukraine and so right from the start what i love about this story is that For the first five, maybe ten pages of the first issue, you don't see Superman. You just hear about Superman. The entire opening of this series is devoted to news reports talking about, you know, the the Soviet Superman has made his world debut and, like, stuff like that. And I think it's fascinating and really gets you as a reader in the mind to know that this is a different kind of Superman story. Most Superman stories were immediately introduced to Clark or Kal-El or Superman, however they decide to introduce you to the character. But here, it's a lot of hearsay, it's a lot of... um, panic to be honest which is exactly how i think we would realistically um react if this story took place today i mean think of it with all of the strife going on with uh russia and all that stuff right now think of how much panic 
would be going on, especially in our news and our media outlets, if all of a sudden we hear, like, Putin has a Superman. Like, it's terrifying. And it really, again, puts you in the mindset to get you ready for what this story is going to tell you. And the thing that I love about the story is that Regardless of the change in location, regardless of the change in time period, regardless of the change in his, I guess, goals, this story really still is about Superman. Superman at his core is still Superman regardless of his upbringing, and I love that. The story also takes a lot of liberties with Superman when it comes to his characterization and his uh, relationships with people, which is fascinating. And we'll talk a little bit more about the supporting cast as we go along here. But one of the most endearing things about Superman is that even though he was born, raised, and bred within Soviet Russia, he still has this... um, smallville farm boy mentality of i want people to believe in me i want people to know that i'm here to help uh there's a great line in the story that they lifted straight for um the the animated film at least in the trailer where he's addressing the american people basically saying like it's okay to be afraid because you've been taught to be afraid and it's so interesting getting to see him through this lens because we're so used to superman in the lens of a small town um uh low-income american farm boy that we lose sight of the fact that Clark Kent, at his core, really is a product of his environment. Uh, There are stories that we've seen, whether it's with Superman specifically or with Superman analogs, where they show that his upbringing, his environment, really shapes who that character is. If Superman was not raised by the Kents in Smallville, in Kansas, in USA, he would be a very different person. Think of the... Think of the idea, just the idea of Superman being raised in a place like Gotham, the cynicism of that of that city, uh, the darkness, the inherent darkness in that city is something that would be completely uh, transformative for his character. And we've seen stories like that also in the Elseworlds line. But here you get to see how the values and the core themes behind Superman's character gets shaped under the Iron Curtain. And seeing him interact with uh, Joseph Stalin, seeing him interact with the Kremlin, seeing him interact with the uh, the director of the KGB is really interesting and you realize how much of a military force he is in this book. Superman is... Mm, I would say arguably single-handedly responsible for uniting the entire world under communism with the exception of the United States and most of those uh, most of those countries that have kind of fallen under the regime really come to them through a um, a peaceful union but there are still plenty of countries that do not go that way and even though he's reluctant superman 
makes it a point that he's not messing around, that he is here to make the world a better place, even if he believes that that better place means under communism. And watching his character grow over time, because this comic really does deal with the concept of time and the concept of years going by uh the story doesn't take place you know over the course of a year over the course of two years this comic really takes place over the course of probably around 60 years for the most part and then jumps wildly forward hundreds and hundreds of years near the end and it's fascinating to see how his character is shaped not just by his upbringing in the Soviet Union, but also by real-world events. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis is mentioned here. Uh, they mention the different terms of presidents like Nixon, presidents like JFK in this specific continuity. Uh, President Nixon was the one assassinated in 1963, and JFK ends up becoming a pretty... Um, not corrupt president, but um, someone who definitely walks the moral gray line more than people like to remember him as. Uh, we also get to see the expansion, the rise, and ultimately the fall of the uh, Soviet regime when it comes to uh, coming out of World War II, going into the Cold War, and beyond. They even mention uh, different things that happen in this uh in this alternate history like there's a civil war in the mid 80s because of growing um i guess uh growing compassion growing sympathy for superman's cause to the point that there is i think 16 different states that leave the union before ultimately returning later on but it's fascinating watching how much the world and DC Comics as a whole would change if only Superman landed 13 hours later. And you see him go from someone who is genuinely good-hearted and genuinely wants to make the world a better place however he can to someone who reluctantly has to step into basically a dictator role after the death of Stalin after he's poisoned and then ultimately becoming a ruler over soviet russia over the basically the global communist regime and it's kind of sad to be honest because you see how every situation he is almost reacting to like when something bad happens it's it's not something he plans for and every um Every interaction, every catastrophe, every situation that happens in this story, Clark leaves, or I guess he wouldn't be Clark technically, uh, Superman leaves being changed by it. And most times changed for the worst. There's a point where Brainiac comes to Earth and instead of you know having Kandor bottled, he has Stalingrad bottled up. Or I think it's... It's either Stalingrad or Moscow, but essentially that city becomes the Kandor, um, the Kandor placeholder, and Superman strives for decades to try to return them to normal size, and he's never able to. And putting that kind of concept that we've seen before with Kandor, but making it a real, tangible human city really puts a huge spotlight on how terrible a villain that Brainiac is and how much that weight 
rests on the shoulders of Superman in that failure. Uh, we talk about before we've talked about many times over the course of my conversation with multiple uh, comic book fans how Kandor really is a sticking point for Superman. He endeavors to return them back to their normal size in certain stories he's able to in certain stories he's not able to. but in this story they really treat it as a failure on his part um, with his inability to return them to their normal size. And I love that. I love that they're putting new spins on classic ideas. Uh, the Cold War really does have a huge um, impact on the story because, of course, that's really the place and the setting of most of the story. We see how the world is responding to communism. They see how the world is responding to the Cold War, how nuclear deterrent isn't really on the table anymore because Superman is now on the table. And in, and, I, and this is why I love stories that age in real time. This is one of the things I loved about uh, Spider-Man Life Story. That was an incredible story written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Mark Bagley that really uh, took a look at what would happen if Spider-Man aged in real time from his conception into modern day and getting to see how Marvel superheroes would react to real world events was fascinating. Um, they never really, I guess they kind of touch on it a little bit, but um, they don't really touch on stuff like the Korean War or the Vietnam War. They reference something about them about the U.S. trying to drive communism out of the South Pacific, which could be referencing the Vietnam War, but they never outright say it. Uh, we also never see them directly talk about 9-11, uh, which I think is fascinating. Uh, the story is just something that you don't often think about when it comes to uh, real-world concepts and real-world events. Like, of course, the uh, the DC universe really exists within its own bubble, but it being part of essentially like the real world really puts a different spin on characters when they're reacting to stuff that really honestly happened. And that affects all of the characters that you're used to seeing and used to interacting with and used to reading about when it comes to this brave new world uh characters like wonder woman who is relatively unchanged for the most part it's just her views and her ideals are shifted a little bit uh the story really brings her in when she as an ambassador from paradise island comes to uh i guess have uh like a summit, a peace summit with uh, with Russia. And so Superman and Diana really first meet each other during this summit while she's an ambassador for Themyscira. And pretty quickly, uh, Diana falls for him because in her eyes, you know, regardless of whether or not um, Superman's an alien, she is she has found someone like her. And Clark... I keep wanting to call him Clark, but he's not Clark here. Um, he also sees that she's more like him than anyone else he's ever met. Uh, 
you have to kind of assume, I guess, that Steve Trevor never shows up in this story or on Paradise Island because pretty quickly after uh, after Themyscira and Wonder Woman really as a whole uh, takes on and pledges herself to communism, she is at the side of Superman for most of the story. Uh, unfortunately, this does end up costing her because during a climactic uh confrontation with a character who we are definitely going to talk about uh she ends up breaking her own lasso which was binding her and it's kind of unclear exactly what effect this has on her but from what we can tell it essentially breaks her like she goes from being um the wonder woman that we're kind of all familiar with to uh, being sapped of her strength, her hair grayed. It looks like she's aged up like at least like 20 to 30 years into an older woman. And it's so fascinating to see her become bitter by this because you see throughout the story that she is smitten with Superman and that she's following him because she's in love with him. But he doesn't ever see her that way. And in... In that confrontation that we talked about and that we will talk about, it almost feels like he knows how in love with him she is and exploits that to win the day. And it's sad. And that's, you know, I think it speaks to how this universe and how this story corrupts the ideals of Superman as a concept. There's also a great great emphasis put on the green lanterns and i love this idea anytime that there is a that there's like an elseworld story or an alternate universe story i always key into what do they do with the green lanterns what are they do with the green lantern core um that was one of my favorite aspects of flashpoint where the ring never really found its way to hal jordan and how Jordan ends up being a pilot for an experimental ship, which was formerly Avan Sur's ship. Um, and then this one is really interesting as well, because Avan Sur once again does crash land on Earth, but he is found by the U.S. military and basically kept in storage for, I think, like 20 years or something. And so Hal Jordan who also has an incredible backstory in this story where he was part of that um, that battle between the U.S. and the South Pacific, and he was a fighter pilot who was captured and forced to... Uh, he was basically a prisoner of war for, I think they said, like at least like a year? And he... His willpower during this time is what makes him qualified to wield the Green Lantern ring. Uh, it also seems like they, I guess, artificially manufacture more Green Lantern rings to make a Green Lantern Marine Corps, and I freaking love that. Um, the design for the Green Lantern Corps here is super strong as well, really taking um, uh, design elements from you know, flight jackets from uh, Air Force uniforms, from flight suits. Like, it's really, really cool. And you do get uh, one-off mentions of Lantern Stewart, Lantern Gardener, Lantern Rainer, which I, as a super geek, really freaking love. Um, there, 
they have this big battle with Superman near the climax of the story. And Superman is still just way too powerful for any of them. But the design of them is really cool. And the concept of them coming together to battle him, I think, is really cool as well. So I really need to talk about Batman. Because like any Elseworlds story that involves the wider DC universe, Batman has to show up somewhere. And this Batman is quite unique from all of the other characters in this uh, in this story. All the recognizable DC heroes that get different versions about them. Oliver Queen shows up as a um, as an employee of the Daily Planet, and so does Iris West. But this Batman is not Bruce Wayne. They never really give a name to this Batman, but he is the son of two, um, I guess you could call them freedom fighters, who were printing um, anti-Superman propaganda posters and stuff, and so they were gunned down by um, by the Soviets, and their son, just like Bruce Wayne, uh, swore revenge on uh on stalin on the kremlin on the kgb all of them and this batman is vicious he is cunning he is an alcoholic uh, <laughs> but this is one of the most interesting and unique takes on the batman that i've seen in a really long time and that um doesn't get his just due uh, a lot of people talk about Batman, alternate Batman, and Red Sun Batman doesn't show up a whole lot, so I love when people give him the proper love, because he's a really unique character. He is literally a terrorist. He is exactly how Batman would be if the uh, if the government was a dictator dictatorship regime and he is involved in multiple bombings he's involved with kidnapping government officials and ultimately he ends up um, working with uh, Piotr who is uh, Stalin's illegitimate son and the head of the KGB as well as Lex Luthor who we are going to talk about uh, to scheme and manipulate Superman into a situation where he seemingly can't win. Uh, this culminates in a confrontation that we mentioned earlier where Batman has captured Wonder Woman and subdued her with her own lasso and brought Superman to essentially a concentration camp where they have set up lamps that emit red sun energy and red sun light. And Batman puts the whooping on Superman during this story, and I think it's really, really cool because immediately Superman is just like, "How did you get so strong?" And he's like, "You know what? Never mind. Just one blast of heat vision will take care of you." And he just tries to do his heat vision, and he can't. He's like, "Oh shit!" And just, it's a great, great scene, a great confrontation. Um, I would say it's on par with the Dark Knight Returns Batman Superman fight, which I know. That might be a hot take, and it might be a controversial take, but I stand by it. I think it's one of the best uh, Batman-Superman fights that we've gotten, and especially with how it ends. Because, once again, just like every other Batman-Superman uh, confrontation that we've seen in comics over the years, Batman wins, and he locks up Superman and forces Superman to communicate with Diana because... They, they each have super hearing, so they're the only two who can uh, communicate on a, at a certain um, wavelength. And 
once again, Superman manipulates Diana into breaking her own lasso, thereby forever changing her. Uh, there's a long period for like, I think six months where she's essentially catatonic because of this. But uh, Diana is able to rip out the generator following this to shut off the red light. And Superman breaks out of his cell that Batman has locked him in. And Batman ends up going, Oh yeah. Hey, by the way, you're, uh, you're basically your stepbrother. He's the one that betrayed you and then blows himself up to be a martyr for his cause. And as we see, cause the story does, you know, go through a couple generations as time passes, more Batman show up to fulfill, um, his, his, uh, his promise and his, uh, his fight, his war against the KGB and against the, uh, dictate, dictatorial regime but as time passes they are caught they are rounded up and they are essentially lobotomized into being uh peaceful citizens of the soviet uh of soviet russia and it's fascinating watching his journey and watching his legacy as time goes on become something just like we kind of always expected with the story of Batman becoming a symbol, becoming greater. So those are the characters that you know that really, I think, I mean, aside from them being Justice Leaguers and past stories, they really have a huge impact on Superman's story in this alternate history. But there is no one single person who makes a bigger impact on his life than his arch nemesis, his hated rival, Lex Luthor. And this is a really interesting take on Lex Luthor, and I'm going to tell you why. Because Lex Luthor always talks about, in stories uh, in the main DC universe, he always harps on this idea of, if Superman wasn't around, I would be a better person. If Superman wasn't around, I would be saving the world. And... I think one of the best takes that ever was on that was during the All-Star Superman uh, story where Superman like counters that with, if you really cared about um, saving the world, you would have done it by now. I couldn't have stopped you. And this one takes an even bigger um, stretch on that where he, without being encumbered by Superman, is this super genius who is you know curing cancer, curing AIDS, um, later on in life, develops this pill that wipes out uh, hereditary and genetic illness. Um, he is introduced by like reading 13 books over the course of a day while playing chess with two different people and not even breaking a sweat. Like he is a super genius. They uh, reference him as a ninth or like a level nine intellect, which I don't have time to get into the intellect levels, but is pretty high. It's a pretty high one. And Lex Luthor is almost as much of the star of the story as Superman is, because while Superman is the leading man when it comes to Soviet Russia, Lex Luthor is that for the U.S. He is the leading scientist at Star Labs, of all places, and is essentially commissioned by the U.S. government to try to take out Superman. And he does this in a variety of ways. First, he develops Bizarro, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, he develops the Parasite. He develops Metallo. He develops all of these. It's later on um, implied that he develops Doomsday. All of these different 
Superman deterrents that ultimately don't work. And he ends up going from this person who essentially has it all, including being married to Lois Lane, which we're going to talk about. But he goes from this person who couldn't have a care in the world and is just um, monopolizing knowledge into this person who becomes just obsessed with trying to beat Superman. And it really speaks to this idea that no matter what he says about, you know, if Superman wasn't here, blah, 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 um, he is as defined in his life by Superman as Superman is defined by Lex Luthor. And I would say it's, I would say it's arguable that that point of the two of them influencing each other's lives is represented at its strongest here no other story that i can think of off the top of my head really speaks to the strength of the lex luthor superman relationship than this story lex luthor dedicates every waking hour of every day to trying to bring superman down and ultimately he is successful with quotation marks uh because he um really realizes who superman is he gets down to the core of who superman is and there's this great great moment where he is able to completely disarm superman and um make him see the error of his ways by one sentence and this is at this point superman has essentially conquered the entire world with the exception of the united states and he is getting ready to attack the U.S. Uh, with basically the support of his right-hand man, Brainiac, who he thought, who he basically thinks he reprogrammed. And Superman sees that there's a manila envelope that contains the words, why don't you just put the entire world in a bottle, Superman? And it's just one of those like, oh my god! Because as we mentioned earlier, the shrinking and the bottling of one of Russia's biggest cities and Superman's inability to save that city really is his greatest failure at the end of the day. And the idea that he has become everything that he hates, that he has become just as bad as Brainiac was originally, really speaks to how much superman the idea of him has been corrupted and i love that i love that again they get down to the core of the character and it shows that when treated a certain way when he is uh beholden to someone who does not have the best intentions superman can be led astray and this story perfectly um um perfectly encapsulates that idea uh brainiac also becomes kind of the secret antagonist where he uh it's kind of revealed that superman's uh conquering of the world was influenced by brainiac who never was uh who never was uh reprogrammed and was subtly manipulating superman into um conquering the world for him and when Lex is able to disarm Brainiac and bring, you know, Superman to see the error of his ways. Superman dismantles Brainiac and flies his uh, ship across the universe to, before it can blow up. And there's this great—I'm just going to read from the uh, from the book I have it uh, from the page I have it in front of me. Um, 
basically Brainiac's ship has been set to self-destruct. Uh, Luthor says, the six mini black holes that were powering his engines have been primed to go off. What are we going to do, Superman? And Superman says, I'm not going to do the Russian accent, don't worry. Superman says, what do you think, Luthor? Luthor says, but power on this level being unleashed is going to wipe out everything in a 15 million mile radius. Even you aren't that fast. And Superman just says, don't count on it, mister. And I love that. It's quintessential Superman. He is the most Superman in this moment because he flies that Brainiac ship as far as he can. And there's no way that he he should be able to feasibly get it far enough away to save the Earth. But he does. And as he's flying the ship away, he says, Lex, I know you're not going to hear this message for a while or even see the explosion until the light reaches you. But there's something I have to say before I go. Well played, old friend. And ship explodes and Luthor is left at this um, at this chessboard in Superman's Fortress of Solitude, which he built with the help of Brainiac in this universe. And Lex, and I love this, I have to read this. Lex says, Superman gone, Brainiac gone. The world ready to embrace Lutherism because he does become the president here. Uh, the world ready to embrace Lutherism even more readily than ever before. One could almost be forgiven for thinking that this had all been worked out to the 10th decimal point 40 years ago. Checkmate, Superman. And the idea, the mere implication that Lex Luthor had been plotting for 40 years to get to this end point is incredible. Uh, Lex Luthor is one of the greatest villains and greatest characters of all time when it comes to comics, Marvel, DC, whatever. And the legacy that this character has on this world is felt for hundreds of years. As we come to find out in the big twist of the story, which I I remember reading for the first time, my draw dropped. I was, I think I was like 10 or 12, no, I was, I think I was like 12, 13 years old reading the story for the first time and my jaw dropped when I found this out. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead and read this. So by the age of 120, the entire Luthor's age, by the age of 120, the entire solar system had been colonized. The triple had replaced the couple, and the average man would live for an incredible 800 years. In the cusp of the fourth millennium, as he lay dying in his cryo chamber with his dear wife behind, beside him, he was asked by newsbots about his greatest accomplishments. His, the answer was simple. He whispered, replying without a moment's hesitation, defeating the alien. What in the world could possibly compare with saving my people from Superman? And this speaks to his character, that he has devoted his entire life, his life's work, even though he cures sickness, he saves the world, brings the entire world to a new age of um, industrial and medical revolution. Um, he's married to Lois, who doesn't play a huge role in the story, but her presence is felt throughout the story and the fact that she falls in love with Superman um, at first sight, but spends her entire life being married to Lex Luthor and being a Luthor. Um, 
his greatest achievement was defeating Superman. And as we find out, Superman didn't die from the explosion. He came back to Earth and ended up living the rest of his life, we can assume, under the Clark Kent identity as a just normal person, which I love. Um, but the big, 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 big twist here. Um, let me move this. Da, 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 da. Okay, so I'm again, I'm just going to read this because the I could not explain it to the justice of the actual text here. So I'm going to read this here. For the first time, this is Superman speaking. For the first time, I could sit back and see the wonders of the world through human eyes and appreciate a resourcefulness that I had failed to give them credit for. Mankind had evolved to become the most advanced species in the known universe, inspired and led by a billion years of the Luthor lineage. Lena Luthor, the artist. Lombard Luthor, the Imagineer. Lori Luth 145, the Mathematician. Jordan Luth 1938, pioneering necronaut and first man to set foot in the afterlife. Alex L. Jordan L. Lana L. And of course, Lex Luthor's great grandson to the power 50, a young man called Jor L., whose IQ exceeded that of even his beloved ancestor. Like what? We're going to go on. But he's been acting strange lately, working too hard and telling the world that our bright red sun that has dimmed my powers and aged my mind is in danger of consuming us. Could he be right, I wonder? Or is this to be the first time in countless years that a Luthor has made a mistake? So as we go along, we find out that this universe's Krypton is Earth, that our sun eventually ages up and becomes a red sun and that the Luthor lineage goes so far down that the only thing that is retained from the Luthor name is the L. And so his late great descendant of Lex Luthor, Jor L, and his wife, Lara, send their son in a rocket ship back through time as the Earth explodes and Superman lands baby Kal-El Baby Cal L, Cal Luthor, lands in the Ukraine in Russia in 1938. Like, the idea of turning this story into a time loop, into a locked time loop, is so incredibly fascinating and really. Um, dark especially with uh jor-el's last lines here where he says goodbye my son go back and change the world so that we might not become this cold complacent lot without the knowledge that they are living in the world directly influenced by him going back in time in the first place i love it i love this twist I love the twist. I love the time loop. I love that the story wraps up in a way that is so new and fresh when applied to a Superman story that it really recontextualizes the whole thing. Uh, and that story, just in general, really recontextualizes Superman as a character. And so when we talk about the legacy of this story, when we talk about how this story affected Superman and affected Superman's stories going forward... 
This story affected the way that we see Superman. Uh, in the years since this came out in 2003, this story has brought upon this idea of what if Superman was Superman but different. Uh, we had had stories of Superman in different settings in the past when we're talking about like Superman or the Justice JLA The Nail or Superman, um, like I said earlier, being you know, landing in Gotham City and being raised as a Wayne, you know, all of this stuff that we had seen before was still quintessentially Superman being Superman. Nothing was really changed about the character. This story changed Superman and alternate universe Superman stories going forward. Um, you can take stories like, um, like Flashpoint. You can take stories like the Injustice universe and trace them all the way back to this story and you will find the DNA of the story in those stories. Um, this Red Sun story has also become one of, like I said, the most beloved Superman stories ever. Uh, Henry Cavill has talked about wanting to do a Red Sun Superman story back when he was, you know, Superman. Um, and as of this recording, we don't know exactly what Warner Brothers' plans are for Superman going forward, but um, who knows? We'll find out, I guess. Uh, but it's so fascinating to watch how this story has grown and grown and grown over the years. So much so that it is now getting a DC animated film adaptation that is coming out in two weeks. Uh, less than two weeks, actually, I think. I don't know. I'm going to have to recheck the release date. But anyway, end of February... Um, this uh, this story will be adapted into an animated film. Uh, DC animation has always been uh, pretty strong. In recent years, I think the quality has dipped a little bit when it comes to stories like Batman Hush, um, Batman and Harley Quinn. But with the Superman stories, I think they've been really strong. Uh, Death and Return of Superman I thought was really, really good. I recently rewatched. watched uh, Reign of the Superman, and I ended up liking it a lot more than the first time I watched it, but I am really, really excited about this animated film. Um, this is a story that people have been clamoring for to see adapted for a really long time. We've gotten uh, motion comics before, but never a real true blue animation, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I will probably be doing a review, probably like a Geek Explained Extra, to review the uh, film, but I'm really excited about this, and I'm glad that this uh, legacy is being continued forward. We've seen this story adapted into different mediums. We've seen most recently in the Supergirl show. Last season was all about Red Sun, um, basically turning it into Red Daughter and making Kara have a doppelganger who was raised in Russia. Uh, we've seen these kind of stories. And these characters, Red Sun Superman, has popped up in pretty much every single uh, multiverse story since the uh, debut of that character. And I'm loving the fact that the Superman uh, that we all know and love doesn't have to be one single thing to everyone. Everyone can have their Superman. A lot of people, for some people, not me, but there are some people that Red Sun Superman is their Superman. And that's a completely valid argument and completely valid um, uh, viewpoint to have. But overall, I think what this story proves, regardless of time, 
regardless of place, regardless of upbringing, regardless of his environment, at the end of the day, Superman will always be Superman. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of the show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing episode 7 of season 12 of Doctor Who. Uh, Specifically, this episode is entitled Can You Hear Me? Um, I was really hoping that the show would kind of bounce back after last episode really didn't do a whole lot for me. Um, And this episode absolutely did i really really enjoyed can you hear me um so let's go ahead and just dive right into it so the story starts and really uh takes place the majority in aleppo syria in 1380 uh first off oof uh (laughs) placing your story in that location specifically aleppo um, is really fascinating to me, and Doctor Who continues to push the envelope by their settings, their subject matter, and really all of the um, stuff that they're putting into this season, and really uh, Jodie Whittaker's era as the Doctor, and I, I really dig it. Uh, this episode really touches more on um, on science fiction, uh, out the gate, you get serious horror vibes, and that's kind of what I was expecting from the uh, preview from last week. But after the initial horror stuff kind of um, settles in, you really it really kind of turns into more dark sci-fi in the vein of like um, like Cloverfield Paradox, that kind of feel generally. Um, and it starts off with there being an intruder in the TARDIS, and I loved that. We get to see him a little bit later, and it becomes it becomes clear who this guy is later on, but I love the fact that this guy just pops up in the TARDIS. Doctor has no idea he's there, and he just disappears. Um, the story was... The story took you... Or took me as a, as a viewer on... A pretty interesting ride because the story uh, goes through a couple different fakeouts on what it's going to be. The initial opening kind of makes it seem like it's going to be a real horror story like I assumed. But then uh, the the, uh, following few minutes makes you think, oh, this is going to be a Doctor-specific episode without the companions. Because the companions, the episode starts off with the Doctor dropping them off you know, to go about their day while she goes and gallivants about. And what you come to find out is that this story of all three companions while they're home interweaves with each other and back into the Doctor's story. So I was kind of hoping that it was going to be kind of the Doctor alone and we'd get to see who she is when she's by herself because we really haven't seen all that much of it. Um... Most of her scenes, really most of her just in general, has been with other people. And I think one of the most fascinating things about this Doctor is that we've never seen her when she's alone. 
and we don't see how she acts when she's alone so i really hope that at some point we do touch on that but i also actually honestly liked the companions getting to spend some time with their uh their people their family uh yaz and her sister get to hang out for a little bit and that results in um the first kind of tease into later on all of their stories intertwining uh ryan's friend i think his name is tippo tippo something like that um also talks about this mysterious stranger who's been showing up in his dreams and later has been showing up in his room and then graham gets this psychic message and initially i was super down with this because i was like dude graham is i think the most important out of the three he's gotten the most fleshed out and i'm always down for graham stuff um but as we come to find out, the TARDIS team specifically is being targeted. And that brings them all together into the secret lab where they find out that there's a planetary incursion happening. And in between these two planets about to collide, there is this prison orb. Uh, we also get basically the revelation that uh, this mysterious stranger's name is Zelen and that he is some kind of interdimensional god who is trying to free his mate, who I don't believe gets a name, um, and that he, ha he has the ability to trap people in their worst nightmares and prey on their fears. So I thought that was really cool. Um, the Doctor does get trapped for a moment, and we do see the Timeless Child. Uh, it's still super freaking unclear about what the hell is going on with this Timeless Child tease, but I'm sure we're going to get more as the season goes on. But what this episode really comes down to is, doc is the Doctor versus a pair of gods. Uh, after they free the god who was in the prison orb, they find out that Zelen had tricked them and that the god uh, was partnered up with him and the two of them are committed to ruining every civilization they come across. And this story essentially gets boiled down to the idea of conquering your nightmares and conquering your fears uh the doctor does end up trapping the gods both of them back in this prison orb where they will hopefully stay for all of eternity and the big uh takeaway for me from this was that everyone has changed because of this uh because of this experience uh, i gotta give it up to my girl yaz we finally finally get some backstory with Yaz and some character development. We find out that three years prior, she was running away and she was hitchhiking. Something bad had happened and she was um, ready to kind of like end it all. And she gets uh, basically picked up by a cop who tells her to turn her life around. And this seems to be what inspires Yaz to become a cop. So I really liked that. And I hope that we get more focus on Yaz as the season goes on. Um, her nightmare, basically her greatest fear, was that the uh, cop never found her. Uh, Ryan, is his fear is that he uh, is away traveling with the doctor for too long and ends up missing out on the most important things in his life uh, which I think is going to play into the idea that he might not uh, be sticking around after or by the end of the season he might be leaving the TARDIS but Graham's was I think the most heartbreaking because it's revealed in this episode that uh, Graham is a cancer survivor and his nightmare is that it comes back 
And by the end of this episode, and I love this, um, by the end of this episode, he doesn't confide in Ryan. He doesn't confide in Yaz. He doesn't confide in anyone. He confides in the doctor that his fear of the cancer coming back um, is driving him, and it's driving him insane, and he needed to tell someone and the fact that he's able to trust the doctor with this information that he can't trust with anybody else that it scares him and that that's something that's constantly on his mind i thought was really really touching and it shows that through this episode and really through their entire journey through last season and here all of these characters have grown close all these characters are developing all these characters are growing and i'm loving the character development with the companions this season uh last season was really focused on ryan even though i think graham got more development um but this season has really been uh putting some time into graham and into yaz and i'm excited for it so that does it for this week next week uh looks interesting i'm not sure exactly what to make of the preview but i'll be here next week uh, so tune in for that for uh, episode eight as we wind down and kind of head into the home stretch. We've only got three more episodes left of this season. Uh, it's been, been kind of blowing by, so I'm excited. So tune in next week for episode eight. And for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title and creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, every synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you'd like me to try out for this segment, feel free to request them at Pod on Twitter and Instagram or through email to geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week with the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, it blew it out of the water. It was Daredevil number 17, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by George Fornes, um, or Jorge Fornes. I mispronounced your name and I apologize. Uh, but... I just, I am loving what they're doing with Daredevil. I really am. This story, this side-by-side story of the Kingpin and Daredevil realizing that Hell's Kitchen and New York is not the end-all be-all. And them essentially running afoul of this, um, of this family that essentially runs the entire U.S., uh, is fascinating. It really grounds the characters once again. I'm loving uh, the Fornes art is spectacular. He can just draw the rest of it forever. Um, but it's so, so good. It's an excellent uh, character study on Matt Murdock as well as Wilson Fisk. And I think this is the best the character has been in a very long time. If you are not reading this book, do what I did. Catch up with the first two volumes, pick up issues 11 through 17 in uh, in uh, single issue, get on this book, read this book, you should be reading this book, it's so, so freaking good. But that's last week, let's talk about this week. This week we've got 
seven books for you. And uh, let's go ahead and jump right on in. So first off, we have Star Wars, The Rise of Kylo Ren, number three of four, written by Charles Sewell with art by Will Sliney. Uh, this book's been good. I think I liked issue two more than issue one, and I'm hoping that the trend kind of continues, and as we go along, each issue will top the previous one. But I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it overall. There's a lot of conceptual stuff that you have to kind of get on board with or get out and i guess that's really that kind of speaks to star wars as a whole but um i've been enjoying it so far and i'm interested to see how this story rack wraps up in the back half so let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here ben solo knight of ren soon Ben Solo's path will end in a place of fire and blood, and a shadow will rise to take his place. He is with the Knights of Ren now, and they will welcome him if he can pay their price. But before that destiny is fulfilled, a battle must be fought at an ancient Jedi outpost on the planet Elfroda. Between Ben and those who know what he could have been, and fear what he might become. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Everyone here is afraid. Ben Solo, most of all. So yeah, this is continuing the story of Ben Solo's uh, basically fall from grace and the birth of Kylo Ren, and I'm here for it. Next up, we have X-Men number six, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Lenil Francis Yu. Um, this story, I think, is starting to pick up again. I loved issue five. I was really, really into issue five, and I'm excited to see where they go with this story. Um, namely, if they follow up on the three lost mutants that uh, kind of went into the... I don't remember what they called it, some kind of like datascape or something <laughs> uh, from last issue, or if that's going to be something that's going to come uh, further on down the line. Knowing Jonathan Hickman, it's probably the latter. But I'm excited to see where they go next with this. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. Mystique goes to extraordinary lengths to get what she wants. So yeah, simple, just like that. Um... Uh, I'm excited. I like Mystique as a character, and I'm interested to see if they follow up with that uh, Mystique theory from Hawks Pox that she was doing something else during the suicide mission. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Next up, we have Thor number three, written by Donnie Cates with art by Nick Klein. Uh, this story has surprised me over the last two issues. Uh, after reading the first issue, I didn't know if I was going to love this story or if I was going to stick with it. I decided to give uh, the second issue a shot, and I ended up really, really liking it. Um, the idea of making Thor the Herald of Galactus, I think, is new. It's not exactly something that I was interested in, but I'm interested to see what they do with it. So uh, knowing that, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. 
The Battle of Two Storms. It's Mjolnir versus Stormbreaker as Thor's old ally Beta Ray Bill makes a thunderous entrance. But what has put the two friends at odds? And can the King of Asgard convince the Corbinite to let him continue his bloody mission to save all that is? So I have always been a big, big fan of Beta Ray Bill. And I am excited at the prospect of him playing a major role in this story. I was really excited when they brought him back for uh, The Unworthy Thor, that uh, that inclusion really elevated that story past even as good as I thought it was going to be leading into it. And I'm hoping that this involvement of uh, Beta Ray Bill does the same for the story. So really, really looking forward to this book. Next up, we have... A new number one, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, number one of four, written by Amanda Connor with art by Jimmy Palmiotti. Uh, this is pretty much the response. If you enjoyed uh, the Birds of Prey film that came out this past week, uh, first off, check out our review if you haven't yet. It's a spoiler-filled review that I uploaded uh, this past Saturday. Um, and second of all, this is the book you're going to want to pick up because this is going to involve the exact same characters from the film and it's going to kind of continue on Amanda Connor and Jimmy, Jimmy Palmiotti's Harley Quinn saga. So if you've been a fan of that, if you've been enjoying that, I would definitely pick this one up for sure. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The creative team that transformed Harley Quinn forever returns to shake her world up once more and this time... The gloves are off. Harley Quinn has avoided Gotham City ever since she broke up with the Joker and found a home, and a kind of family, in Coney Island. But when she gets an office she can't refuse, she has no choice but to slip back into the city as quietly as she can, hoping to be gone before anyone, especially her ex, learns she's been there. But for Harley, as quietly as she can is plenty loud, and before she can say, Holy bounty hunters, Batman, the Joker's sicked every supervillain in the city on her pretty ombre head, and the only team tough enough for crazy enough to come to her defense is the Birds of Prey. The foul-mouthed, no-holds-barred sequel to one of DC's raciest runs is here. Get on board early before we come to our senses. So, um, it's, again, it's been kind of unclear whether this story was going to be, um, an ongoing or a limited series or a one shot or canceled, but it looks like they've settled on it being a limited series of four issues, which I'm okay with. And I, once again, loved the Birds of Prey, uh, film. So I will probably be picking this up. Next up, we have Doctor Strange, Surgeon Supreme, number three, written by Mark Wade with art by Kev Walker. I've been loving this. <laughs> I did not think I was going to love this series as much, and I really, 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 really dig it. Um, the initial arc, the initial two-issue arc with us. Uh, uh, Doctor Strange versus the Wrecking Crew was really, really good, and I'm excited to see where they go with all the breadcrumbs that they've left in the previous two issues. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. 
Tattoo removal isn't in a surgeon's job description, but when one man's heavy metal tattoos begin coming to life, Dr. Strange will have to make an exception. With the clock ticking down rapidly, will Dr. Strange be able to save his patient or himself? Find out as Dr. Strange gets drawn into the diagnosis. Literally. So that sounds fun. It sounds wacky. It sounds like a pure Doctor Strange weirdness story, and I am here for it. Next up, um, I have been dreading this book coming out, but I have to just accept that it is here and that everything that has come before it is real, and that is Batman Pennyworth R.I.P. number one. Uh, this is a big old one shot written by James Tynan IV, um, as well as Pete J. Tomasi with art from Eddie Barrows, Lee Weeks, and others. And this is it. This is the final um, nail in the coffin. This is the stamp of authenticity. Alfred Pennyworth is dead. Um, and it hurts, especially knowing now that DC Editorial wanted it and not so much Tom King. But I know that this is going to be an incredible story and I'm really, really looking forward to it. So uh, let's go ahead and just jump into the synopsis here. Alfred Pennyworth served the Wayne family for decades, even through the tragic loss of Bruce Wayne's parents. His death at the hands of Bane is the only event that could possibly compare to that fateful night in Crime Alley, and it leaves Bruce at a similar crossroads. If Alfred was the glue that held the Bat family together, how will Batman deal with that all fallen apart? And if the Cape Crusader is to be truly alone, he might either hang that cape up once and for all, or double down and carry on with his vengeful quest forever. Batman Pennyworth R.I.P. Number 1 celebrates the life of one of the most important people in the history of Gotham City, while also addressing questions about what's next. So this is essentially going to be a wrap-up. I think this is going to be basically a coda for, um, or an epilogue for Tom King's Batman run. And then it's going to give us clues into what's coming up next in the Tynan run as well as the Tomasi run. Uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, the Joker War is coming in Detective Comics, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, I, I It's bittersweet because I know it's going to be a good story, but I do not want to say goodbye to Alfred Pennyworth, but knowing all of this um, 5G stuff is coming kind of taints my feelings when it comes to DC Comics right now, so I am kind of hoping that as good as this story is, uh, Alfred will hopefully be back in the coming years, so um, yeah. And finally, the big book of the week for me, the book that I think you absolutely have to pick up is... Hawkeye Freefall number three. Um, this book has just been so good. The first two issues have been fantastic. Written by Matthew Rosenberg. Art by Otto Schmidt. Everything has just been going so well with this book. And I, I'm i just so excited to read it every single time I pick up a new issue. Um, let's go ahead and just jump into the synopsis here. As things around him are getting 
more dangerous, Clint Barton is being pushed to make some tough and probably really bad decisions. Meanwhile, the mysterious new Ronin is waging war against the Hood and Hawkeye is caught in the middle of it. The web of lies our friendly neighborhood Archer finds himself caught in will have spectacular ramifications when he is confronted by our amazing secret guest star. It's Spider-Man. Shh. I, I, on top of the book just being so fun, these synopses have been so fun to read. I just, I love them. So, um, for those of you who don't know and don't want to be spoiled and haven't read the last two issues of Hawkeye, skip like 10 seconds ahead because maybe 30 seconds. Um, just because the reveal of last issue that Hawkeye is Ronin, I think is going to have huge ramifications, and I don't know exactly how they're going to um, marry the idea that he is Ronin as well as the scenes that we've clearly seen the two of them in the same place. So I'm really looking forward to this book overall, and it's my big pick, the one I'm most anticipated for this week. And that does it for this week's comics countdown. To recap, we have Star Wars, The Rise of Kylo Ren, number three of four, X-Men, number six, Thor, number three, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, number one, Doctor Strange, Surgeon Supreme, number three, Batman, Pennyworth, R.I.P., number one, and Hawkeye, Freefall, number if i missed any books feel free to let me know um i love discovering new books discovering new books is one of my passions and i'm overall just really excited um again kind of a light week for dc books but the two books that are coming out from them are shaping up to be pretty heavy hitters uh, marvel's been really killing it and i'm really interested to see what they do next week how that balance ends up going but if anything if anything is clear about uh, the state of comics for DC, for Marvel, it's that 2020 is going to be a huge year and we have to keep our eyes open. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Feel free to reach out and let me know your thoughts on anything we talked about today, whether it was the big news that we've talked that we talked about earlier, whether it's about Red Sun. Are you excited about the animated film that's coming out? Have you read the original comic? Would love to have that conversation with you. Or is it about Doctor Who? I think Doctor Who has been uh, pretty good this season, absolutely better than last season for sure. And are there any comics that you're excited about? Feel free to reach out. Would love to have a conversation with you about anything we talked about, whether it's through uh, Instagram or Twitter at Pod or through email to geeksplain at gmail.com. That is going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, for those of you who are celebrating, happy Valentine's Day. That's coming up in a couple days. Uh, I guess technically that means this is the Valentine's Day edition of the Geeksplain podcast. And what better celebration of valentine's day than reading about superman in mother russia right i think that's right so <laughs> um tune in next week we are on the march to episode 100 and as we go along i am going to start to tease what our 100th episode is going to be about starting with now um i'm really excited about it our next our big landmark 100 episode i'm going to give you a little teases each week uh in this little outro that we're doing 
just so that uh, you get the, you'll probably be able to guess it really super easy. But uh, I just figured it'd be fun to like leave little breadcrumbs all the way up to the release since we're only five episodes away. So our first piece of, um, of I guess, uh, breadcrumbs to lead you to episode 100 as we continue the march to 100 is that episode 100, just like episode 95, will be a Superman-focused episode. Really excited about it. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I cannot wait to share it with you folks. So tune in next week as we continue the march to 100, and we give you the next piece of the puzzle to let you know what episode 100 is going to be about. Same geek time, same geek channel, but for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Zana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.